Welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm Julian Marshall. In a moment, uh, we'll bring you the latest from Istanbul, where opponents of the government are gathering for a protest against the crackdown following last year's failed coup. Also, why Israel's Mossad spy agency is openly calling for collaboration with tech startups in its new publicity drive. Profiling could be done on customers, could be done on any entity. So today we're working with retailers, tomorrow we can work with security agencies. The idea is once you have that data on a single entity level, you'd be able to profile based on that. And we'll be reporting from Mosul, where the Iraqi army is ever closer to defeating the remaining fighters from so-called Islamic State. But we go first to the Turkish city of Istanbul, where a large protest is to be held later today against the mass dismissals and detentions that have followed last July's failed coup. More than 50,000 people have been arrested and 140,000 dismissed or suspended. Teachers, judges, police officers, soldiers, civil servants. They're accused of links to the US-based Muslim cleric Fatula Gulen, who the Turkish authorities blame for the failed coup. But critics of the government have accused uh, it of using the crackdown to suppress the opposition. And at the forefront of today's rally is Kemal Kilic Darolyu, the leader of the Opposition People's Republican Party, or CHP, who's walked 450 kilometres from Ankara to Istanbul, carrying a placard bearing the word justice. About an hour ago, I spoke to the BBC's Mark Lowen in Istanbul. Well, this has shaped up to be really an unprecedented show of defiance against the Erdogan government, Julian. It started as a, an opposition protest, an opposition-led protest after uh, an MP with the main opposition party, the CHP, was imprisoned. And it started as a walk from Ankara to Istanbul, 450 kilometres. And thousands, tens of thousands have joined since then, thousands joining every day, as they've walked through villages, motorways in boiling heat and pouring rain over 25 days, not under a political banner, but under the banner of Adalet, which is the Turkish word for justice. What they are calling for is an end to what they see as the erosion of Turkey's democracy. Since the failed coup last year, 50,000 people have been arrested, 140,000 people have lost their jobs or been suspended. And this has become a huge, spontaneous act of defiance against the Erdogan government, reaching its culmination today here in Istanbul, at the, close to the prison where the opposition MP is being held. And although the rally is being led or spearheaded by the CHP, you are saying that it is um, ostensibly apolitical. Yeah, that's what they've been very keen to show, that this is something that brings together the different sections of Turkey's notoriously fractured opposition. So they are trying to bridge the divisions and simply call for an end to uh, arbitrary dismissals, to people who are being spending months and years in prison without charges, uh, more than 150 journalists in prison, the erosion of Turkey's judicial independence. So uh, as well as the CHP, you've had Kurds who have joined and, and members of the pro-Kurdish party. Uh, you've had far leftists, people who have who actually been affected by the post-coup purge. So, for example, when I joined them, the marchers last Monday, about 100 kilometres away from Istanbul, I spoke to one academic who had just been dismissed because he was one of 1,100 professors at universities who had signed a petition calling for an end to Turkey's armed conflict in the southeast in the Kurdish area. Um, and he had just been caught up in the purge. So there are people who are being directly affected by what has happened in the last year, and then people who are generally had sort of simmering, building up resentment 
against the Erdogan government. And the march, the rally, being closely monitored by the Turkish um, security forces? Yeah, I mean, it was quite impressive, actually, to see the police and, and soldiers uh, protecting it so well along the way. And I think that, you know, that that was a recognition that this needed to happen uh, in uh, as peaceful way as possible, and that clearly that in today's Turkey there is a huge security threat. That said, uh, President Erdogan has hit out at it very harshly. He, he lambasted the, the, the marchers for siding with terrorist groups, and he called on people to seek justice in the courts and not on the streets. But the problem is that when thousands of judges and prosecutors have been replaced in the past year by government appointees, there is absolutely no faith in judicial independence here, which is why people are taking to the streets in what has become a huge spontaneous uprising um, and call for justice. And, and, and the, the, the CHP is, but believes that there will be hundreds of thousands of people who will gather in Istanbul today. The big question, Julian, is whether they can transform it beyond today into a credible political movement to challenge the Erdogan government in the next elections in 2019. And that is the goal, is it, Mark? It is. I mean, you know, Mr Erdogan has a lot of support in this country still. Half the country, the more pious, more conservative, more religious Turks still see him as their saviour. But the more secular, liberal, higher-earning urban Turks um, and, and citizens of Turkey believe that he has destroyed this country and they want to rise up and, and now seek an alternative. The leader of the, of, the, of the CHP was not really seen as a particularly effective politician until this moment, but he's hit his stride. He's been c- compared to Gandhi by some for the, for, the, for Gandhi's salt march against colonial rule in the 1930s. That comparison may not last, but clearly he has finally kind of got a spring in his step, quite literally. Um, and whether he can carry that through to 2019, well, that is the big question going forward. Back the BBC's Mark Lowen, and I'm joined now by Harun Amagan in Istanbul. He speaks for Turkey's uh, governing AK party. Um, your president has described these marchers, these protesters, as terrorists and their supporters, and yet they're being guarded by the Turkish security forces. Of course, Julian, because Turkey is a democratic country and people are free to do demonstrations, uh, protests peacefully, and it's it's police job to make sure those people are safe and secure because Turkey fights two terrorist organizations, terrorist PKK and ISIS at the same time. And and as you as you can also agree with me that this sort of crowds are open targets for such organizations. Indeed, it was very extremely successful work of the police and intelligence services in the last 25 days. And there was actually a, 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 a terrorist attack was planned with ISIS. Actually, police intelligence uh, successfully stopped it before it happened. Uh, I just would like to add a few sentences, a few words for, for Mark's comments. I, I completely disagree that uh, that President Erdogan, President Erdogan does not oppose this, this sort of uh, peaceful protest. Uh, but it's it's a CHP is the largest uh, largest party in the parliament, largest opposition party in the parliament, and there are judicial there is a judicial decision made and there are there are ways to, in democracy to to if you if you think that judicial decision is wrong there are other ways to it for example to go to constitutional court in turkey or european human rights court as their decisions are also binding for turkey but so so are, sorry so you're you're talking about the initial reason that the chp called this rally which was the jailing of of one of their mps and you are saying that they should follow a judicial process rather than take to the streets in the way that they are. 
No, the 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 peaceful process can be done anytime. They are they are they are all welcome. But if a democratic party in the parliament that they take on people's votes, you need to see in this party a bit, a bit work in the parliament when they are actually blocking new constitutional work that would make Turkey more democratic. And on the other hand, this is a judicial decision, and there are ways in the judiciary to oppose if you if you are if you think this decision is wrong. For example, you can take it to constitutional court for first in Turkey, or then you can go to European Human Rights Courts if you if you think the decision is still wrong and their decisions are binding for Turkey. So without doing all these things and then okay. gathering this crowd doesn't really doesn't really sound to me like something they are really looking for the solution okay. or they just want to use as an excuse. Uh, for the unsuccessful politics in the last 20 years. Okay, Mr. Mr. Amagana, if I can interrupt you, and uh, as we've already established, President Erdogan does have considerable support in Turkey, but he still uh, faces considerable opposition. Why has he alienated so many Turks? Why are there tens of thousands taking to the streets today to oppose him? The answer is very simple, you know, because Turkey is a democratic country. Today, just like we had elections last last month in the UK, Theresa May won was the first party, but there are many people opposed to Theresa May as well. This this doesn't make Turkey, this doesn't make Theresa May an undemocratic person. It makes UK a democratic country, just like in the same Turkey. People, majority of people, vote for President Erdogan. But, but um, the the British government, disagree. but the British government doesn't jail its perceived opponents in their tens of thousands, does it? Well, well, you're wrong if you're saying that Turkish government jails people. It's a Turkish, Turkish judiciary makes a decision and government have nothing to do with those decisions. Turkey is a democratic country, just like UK. It, uh, do the government jail people in the UK? No, they don't have right to do jail people. It's a judicial decision, just like I said, and people can go to Turkish constitutional court or European human rights, because if they disagree with these decisions, Turkey has checks and balances in okay. its judiciary. Mr. Ermagan, many thanks. Harun Ermagan, who speaks for uh, Turkey's uh, governing AK party. In January 2011, there was a shooting at a traffic intersection in the Pakistani city of Lahore that led to a major crisis between Islamabad and Washington. It was a spy drama gone horribly wrong. At the centre of it was a security contractor called Raymond Davis. Details surrounding the incident are still unclear. Davis said he shot dead two Pakistani men in civilian clothes on a motorbike when one of them pulled a gun on him. That's been disputed by the men's families and no eyewitnesses have come forward uh, to corroborate Davis. The Pakistani authorities wanted to put him on trial, but President Obama said he had diplomatic immunity. The reason this is an important principle is if it starts being fair game on our ambassadors around the world, including in dangerous places, where we may have differences with those governments and they start being vulnerable to prosecution locally, that, that's untenable. It means they can't do their job. And that's why we respect uh, these conventions, and every uh, country uh, should as well. Obviously, we're concerned about the loss of life. You know, we're, we're, we're not callous about that. But uh, it, there's a broader principle at stake that I think uh, we have to uphold. 
Questions were raised, though, whether a security contractor could be considered a diplomat. There are also questions about the identity of the men Davis killed, including some suggestions that they were following Davis at the behest of the Pakistani intelligence organisation, the ISI. Well, five years on, Davis uh, has written a book called The Contractor about his experience in Pakistan. He was freed by a judge at a Sharia court after blood money was paid to the victims' families. He gave my colleague Paul Henley his recollection of events that day in 2011. The day started out very normal, nothing out of the ordinary. I went to the car, went to do a, you know, drive the streets and see what the city was like. I hadn't been there for quite a while just to see the area and, and, and get to know the area again. Uh, you always need to know traffic patterns and that type of stuff. So I come up to a intersection, got stopped in a bunch of traffic. There was a motorcycle pulls up alongside, gun comes out, slide gets racked and starts to point at me, and then I drew my gun and defended myself. Why would these men want to kill you? You know, a lot of speculation's been put out there. No one knows who the guys actually really were. More along the lines of normal robbers. You know, they had robbed two guys previous to pulling up next to me. But, you know, when the when the gun comes out, it doesn't matter if they were trying to rob me or not. The fact of pulling a gun and racking the slide and starting to point it at someone, it draws your attention. Because in war zones, everyone usually has a gun, but everyone just walks around with them and it's not a big deal. It's the act of what you do with it that gets people's attention and, you know, rules of engagement are followed after that. And in the book, you talk of people rushing to help you. Who were they? Uh, you know what? We have embassy uh, personnel there. And if something goes wrong, you know, we send out a team of guys to help out. It was just guys at the embassy. They were on their way to help me, got stuck in traffic, you know, made their, their decisions that they made at that time. And then the events unfolded as I wrote about in the book. Right. That sounds a little bit secretive. They were guys from the embassy helping you. What, you were yeah, being trailed? Other you security, were being followed at the no, time, other security you? contractors just like myself. Okay. and I, 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 It's not like just one guy is out operating on his own, you know? What did you feel at the point when you shot these two men? And later you said that you weren't going to lose sleep over it. You know what? As I've, I've stated earlier to people and in the book... Um, you, you don't have time to react when a threat's presented. I mean, that's basically all you have time to do is react. Every, every loss of life is tragic, but innocent lives lost is even more so. So had I run over a kid or injured an innocent person who had nothing to do with the incident, that's very, very tragic. But when a person decides to, and uh, makes an, a, an active choice to draw a gun and rack the slide and point it at you, they made their choice, their decision. So, no, I, I feel no remorse for protecting myself. So you don't think these two had any idea who you were other than a, a target for robbery or a Westerner, possibly well off? I, I do not. And you know what? That's the other part that is kind of shrouded in mystery. The own Pakistani media said that they were ISI guys sent to trail me. Were they? Don't know. Were they just normal robbers? Don't know. What we did get in court and the document said that they had been arrested for robbery 67 times. There were reports that came out, you know, that 
L-E-T, Lashkari Taiba, wanted to kill or capture a quote-unquote like Blackwater operative. And they listed out as, you know, guys who were fit, in shape. Most of them have, you know, tattoos, wear sunglasses, the like. You know, so they have a general description. And they had a killer or capture bounty out that says, hey, if you find these guys, we're going to pay you money. So could they have been those two guys rolled up on a motorcycle, looked in and said, oh, here's a payday. Let's do this. Uh, I don't know. Don't have any answers for that, sir. Did you have any idea at the time what what scale of a diplomatic row this incident would cause between your two countries? I did not. I I knew that it was going to be, you know, big, but I didn't know it was going to be as big as it was. I thought, you know, a few months it would die off and everything would be fine. But come to find out in May, you know, other events unfold and uh, it just reignites everything again. There was a lot of anger at the time in Pakistan. And I understand there's a lot of anger now that your book is out telling your version of events. How do you react to all that? I understand uh, it. You know, the, the event occurred on Pakistani soil. So they're going to have the most passion But it is my version of the events. It's my story. And I know a lot of people say I'm a liar and and just totally discard everything that I say instead of looking at it through an optic and saying, okay, somewhere in the middle, here's the truth. But their leaders are changing the story all the time. But yet no one wants to question their leaders. So who's calling you a liar? So, you know, it's just the the leaders in the book that I name are coming out and the, the articles are all over Google. They're saying that I lie in my book and, you know, they have their version and they have their things they want to say. But uh, it's just disappointing that they would go to these routes, you know, to try and discredit me and slander my name. They know that I, I was not a part of any of that, but yet they're going to put it out because, you know, the Indian, when you want the blame shifted off of yourself and someone to look other places in Pakistan, blame India and it's going to incite the people and they'll stop pointing fingers at, at the person. Okay. What do you think looking back on the whole thing now and, and the fact that you're living a normal life back in, in the U.S.? You didn't, as uh, John Kerry at the time suggested, uh, face criminal inquiry in the U.S. at home, did you? Oh, I did. I When I came back to the U.S., I was questioned by the U.S. legal team. I had the Justice Department there and went through everything, the questioning, everything that I, that happened over in Pakistan. But there were, there were no legal proceedings brought against you? You know what? That's a That's a question for the government. From what I understand, you know, they told me, hey, we did the investigation. They came forward later and you'd have to to get the facts from them. But Pakistan never gave the FBI uh, visas to come over and do the investigation. Former U.S. security contractor Raymond Davis speaking from the BBC's New York studio. The American writer William Burroughs once called them the 4,000-year-old rock and roll band, the master musicians of Jujuka. And each year, the band welcomes guests to their festival at their village in northern Morocco. The three-day event is fairly exclusive, with only 50 tickets on sale to the public. But uh, Richard Hamilton managed to get one of them and found out more about what is uh, a strange, mystical experience in the mountains. 
This has to be the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's a starlit night in the mountains of Morocco. There's a green and red tent with a line of about a dozen musicians, half of them playing drums and the other half playing these reed pipes known as writers. Uh, they're dressed in gold turbans, brown robes and yellow Moroccan slippers. And then in front of them is a man dressed up in a goat skin with a large straw hat and a branch of leaves, and he's thrashing them. And then in front of them are tourists from all over the world. There are people here from Japan, Argentina, Poland, United States, Britain. And they've got into a sort of ecstatic trance state. The man in the goat costume is 64-year-old Mohammed Hatmi. He plays the part of the local deity Bujalud, a half-man, half-goat character similar to the classical god Pan. By day, Bujalud lives in a cave, but is said to come out at night to bestow fertility on the village. Mohammed has been performing with the master musicians for nearly 50 years. <laughs> Uh, he said when he uh, listens the sound of the music and when he makes uh, the clothes, even he is uh, very tired and he can't uh, move, but uh, when he hears the sound, he becomes very strong and uh, very ready to, to play and to move and uh, to make uh, the dance all with the masters. The village also has a shrine to a 15th century Sufi saint. In the old days, if a person was mentally ill, he would be shackled to a tree at the shrine and the musicians would blast their instruments into his face. Even today, the sound of the pipes and drums are said to have healing qualities. Among the foreign visitors to the festival is Rieko Akatsuka from Tokyo. This is my sixth time in Jujuka. Every year, the music purifies my mind and gives me strong energy to live, carry on living. I lost my mom and father eight years ago and I was in deep depression. But when I came here, I've got really strong energy. The master musicians of Jujuka first came to the attention of the outside world in 1968 when Brian Jones, the founder of the Rolling Stones, visited the village and recorded its unique sounds. The musicians even played at Glastonbury in England in 2011, have been to several other countries since and are next scheduled to go on tour in Japan in November. That was uh, the BBC's uh, Richard Hamilton reporting from the northern Moroccan village of Jujuka. Do stay with us here on NewsR. A lot more to come. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsR, available twice each day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service? The documentary brings to life stories and investigations from across the globe or witness remarkable first-hand accounts from important moments in history. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Julian Marshall. This is NewsR. Well, within the past hour, the Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, who's in Mosul, has declared the city liberated from so-called Islamic State, bringing to an end nearly nine months of bitter fighting. 
I'm joined now by Renard Mansour, a fellow in the Middle East and North Africa programme at the Chatham House Think Tank in London and himself an Iraqi. And this has proved to be a much more protracted battle than perhaps was thought when the offensive was launched last year. Yes, it certainly has. Um, Many people were optimistic because it was almost every every side against ISIS, ISIS being on its own and, and kind of isolated. Um, and, and the east of the city, the battle went somewhat smoothly. But it's been these last few months, and particularly these last few weeks in the west, in the old city, where ba- the battle has been very difficult, where you've seen a lot of casualties, where you've seen a lot of uh, difficulties in warfare. Um, so it took a lot longer than most people um, were definitely anticipating. And to some extent, ISIS did put up a fight particularly in the last few uh, weeks and months. Now, I don't want to get into a a discussion about semantics, but uh, you can declare a city uh, liberated uh, from Islamic State, but those fighters can continue, can they not, to pose a threat to the civilian population and indeed the um, Iraqi security forces? Well, this is the reality of the security situation in Iraq. It's that blurring between conventional versus sort of unconventional or asymmetrical warfare. Sure. ISIS or the so-called Islamic State can no longer govern Mosul as it was doing, you know, at this time last year, sure. But, of course, the organization will continue to exist. It will go underground. It'll turn into kind of a mafia or insurgency type of organization and will continue to cause problems in the security of West, East Mosul and elsewhere in Iraq. So, you know, we should... This is not... I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric and people say post-ISIS. ISIS will exist. It's just kind of post that era of of the so-called Islamic state governing Iraq's second largest city. So they no longer govern Iraq's second largest city, but um, how much territory remains under the control of Islamic state in Iraq? Well, in Iraq, they have pockets, pockets of the Kirkuk province, uh, pockets of northern Nineveh, um, and towards the border between Iraq and Syria. So they've lost. I mean, at, the, at its height, ISIS controlled a third of Iraq, it's, it's said. So they certainly have, has, has lo- they've lost a lot of territory, and they're going underground, and there will continue to be a fight against ISIS in those pockets moving forward. Um, so, but they're definitely still there, and they're still a threat. Um, can I just pick you up on that? So you do expect the Iraqi government it's, and its affiliated militias to continue to take the fight to Islamic State? Certainly. Um, and and there's a mo- there are a mo- lot more challenges ahead um, because with the power vacuum that will emerge, as you say, the government forces some of the sort of Shia militias under the popular mobilization units, the Kurdish Peshmerga and other sort of tribal and local forces will all be vying for, for influence and power and land, frankly, particularly in northern Nineveh um, where, where, where there is those contestations. However, there will still be a fight against ISIS. ISIS does still control neighborhoods, blocks, houses, you know, in, in, in different parts of northern Iraq um, and along the border. So this is a huge liberation um, for, for Prime Minister Abadi particularly. It's very symbolic that he's the one who will declare this. Um, and, and Iraqi, there is this cautious optimism in Iraq that ISIS has been defeated. But the organization, I mean, the Islamic State of Iraq was created in 2006. And before that, there was Al-Qaeda. This organization has gone up and down. These sort of has lost and won, lost and won. So no one is jumping to the conclusion that this is the end of that organization. Mr. Mansour, many thanks. Renard uh, Mansour of the uh, Chatham House think tank here, him, here in London and himself, an Iraqi.
And we go now to uh, neighbouring Syria, where dozens of uh, ceasefires have come into force, only to collapse since the conflict broke out in 2011. So what are the chances for the latest, which began about three hours ago, holding for any length of time? It's not a nationwide ceasefire, but covers three provinces, Dera, Sueda and Konetra, in southwest Syria, bordering Jordan and the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. The Americans, the Russians and the Jordanians were all involved in brokering the agreement uh, between the government and a number of rebel groups. And early reports are encouraging, uh, with no airstrikes or clashes reported. Zaydun El Zwabi is a former resident of Dera, who now heads the Union of Syrian Medical Relief Organizations. Who are the rebel groups fighting in this part of Syria? Well, mainly... Let's say there is strong presence for Free Syrian Army in, in Dara for many reasons. First of all, the social, let's say, formation of the city is more moderate. Second, Jordan was very firm on terrorist groups such as uh, Al Nusra Front. There is a small pocket for ISIS, which is close to Qunaitira, western side of Dara. Uh, but vastly, the city is under the moderate opposition Free Syrian Army. And you've mentioned Jordan there, backing some of the rebel groups. Are there other outside forces uh, involved, uh, both backing the rebels and indeed government forces in these three provinces? First of all, with the government side, there is, of course, strong presence for the Iranian uh, militia and Hezbollah. And from the Jordan, there is a lot of support to FSA in terms of logistics, uh, uh, supplies, etc. The main issue is Iran wanted to get very close to Golan Heights. And uh, obviously, Russia and America were unhappy with that, along with Jordan. No one wants Iranian militia close to the uh, borders of Jordan or the borders of the Golan Heights. So the agreement itself, or the cessation of hostility itself, is mainly against the Iranian militia. So you're saying that the Americans, the Russians and the Jordanians have come together in order to keep the Iranian militia away from Israel's borders? From Israel's and Jordan border, exactly. But whatever their motives, it'll doubtless, this ceasefire, be welcomed by residents of those three provinces? Any ceasefire is welcomed by the population there. Any ceasefire, wherever in the country. Anyone now wants just cessation of facilities, wants to stop this war. Of course, it's welcomed. I've been, I've been talking to my relatives there and everyone is happy. No one wants to see jet fighters. No one wants to see battle bombs. No one wants to see fighting. So it seems that there is some sort of agreement throughout the country where you have influence zones for the Americans, Russians, Iranians, Turks and Jordanians. You're from Dara, which, of course, is where the uprising began in 2011. The Western narrative was that the catalyst was peaceful protesters being killed in cold blood by the security forces and the army, while the regime maintains uh, this was all about outside agitators who were spoiling for a fight, having stashed arms and munitions in a mosque in the city. Which of those is true, or is the truth more complex? First of all, I was part of these demonstrations, so I can tell you they were all peaceful. All these uh, 
demonstrations wanted democracy, freedom, citizenship, all these nice values. I think at this moment, we are past who is responsible for what's happening to the country. The country is burned. Does it really matter a lot who's done it? What matters right now is having peace and preserving the unity of the country. That is the most important thing. Zaydun al-Zawabi, a native of the Syrian city of Dara, speaking to us earlier from southern Turkey. The Israeli spy agency Mossad has launched a multi-million dollar fund to invest in the country's high-tech sector. It wants access to new technologies at their earliest stage of development, everything from miniature robotics to software that predicts people's online behaviour. Collaboration between intelligence agencies and industry is common in many countries, but rarely is it advertised this openly. From Jerusalem, our Middle East correspondent Tom Bateman reports. Get ready, he's on his way Its reputation may be formidable, its work shadowy But now a publicity drive from Mossad The video for the agency's investment fund borrows heavily from Bourne or Bond films It's not popcorn-eating audiences they want The ad featuring a cocktail-drinking spy appeals to Israeli high-tech firms Working on a breakthrough technology? Think the Mossad will be interested? Log on to our website. Well, we've come to a neighbourhood of Tel Aviv. The car workshops here are graffitied. The old diamond polishing business is gone. These days, this is the heart of a new Israeli industry, high-tech. This is like the the main office where we started uh, when we moved to this building... Israel boasts more startup firms per head than virtually any other country, and Mossad has its eyes on the tech they develop. Everything from miniature robotics to high-speed encryption to machine learning. Amit Bivas helps run Optimove, a software company that predicts people's behaviour patterns for online retailers. Profiling can be done on customers, can be done on, could be done on any entity, right? So today we're working with uh, retailers, tomorrow we can work with security agencies. The idea is once you have that data on a single entity level, you'd be able to profile based on that. Will your company be applying for Mossad investment? Um, Probably not at this point, but who knows? It has its advantages and disadvantages. The way I see it, having the Mossad being a very um, advanced entity in that space of, uh, of security, so I would say that it is an advantage. The Mossad investment launch saw the head of the agency, Yossi Cohen, appeal for firms to step forward. He said the fund would help fulfill Mossad's national mission, allowing freedom of action for visionary entrepreneurs. His call follows a growing trend by surveillance agencies to invest in emerging IT, but its publicity has perhaps been the most bold. The CIA puts cash into Silicon Valley startups through an intermediary called InQtel, while Britain's eavesdropping agency GCHQ has announced grants to work with cybersecurity firms in the UK. Are you Dan? Tom. Hey, Tom, how are you? Nice to see you. Near the cocktail bar in a Jerusalem hotel, I met Dan Pfefferman, a former intelligence officer in Israel's army. He said many Israelis, after compulsory national service, take intelligence skills straight into industry, and Mossad wants to capitalise on it. 
the novel aspect is that they're getting the concept at its very early stage before it goes to market, which means they're also going to have exclusivity on it, and which means they're going to have it a good four or five years before that product reaches the market and before that product reaches Israel's rivals or enemies. But spies with technology have proved controversial in the past. The leaks by the former US intelligence worker Edward Snowden inflicted PR damage on big web-based firms. In Israel, the military has previously fended off accusations from veterans of an elite army intelligence unit who claimed information was used for what they called the political persecution of Palestinians. Omar Shakir, the Israel-Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, is sceptical about such tie-ups between companies and security agencies. It raises significant concern. I mean, on one hand, uh, governments are regularly involved and often have been the engine for technological growth in many parts of the world. But on the other hand, it further raises concern around facilitating rights abuses. And you worry about the lack of transparency, especially in a system where there is rampant impunity for, for abuse. And you worry again about practices that occur in the shadows um, and without oversight, without accountability. Spy agencies have always sought to exploit the latest technology. Mossad wants to find it in what some here are calling Israel's Silicon Wadi. Tom Bateman reporting. Moscow's Bolshoi Theatre has cancelled the world premiere on Tuesday of a ballet about the dance legend Rudolf Nureyev. Regarded as uh, one of ballet's most gifted male dancers, Nureyev, who died in 1993, defected from the Soviet Union to the West, where he went on to receive widespread acclaim for his technical prowess, but also as an accomplished choreographer. The Bolshoi's director insists the premiere is being postponed because it's not yet fit to run. But as many Brown, arts journalist and former dance critic for the Daily Telegraph newspaper, believes there are other reasons. There were two things that represent Nureyev. One is he quit Russia. He quit Russia for the West. Now, today, that is not a good message for the Russians. Secondly, he wanted to be gay and not to be seen as some sort of a pretender. His life was very secret in as much as he had many gay affairs, but had not been allowed to uh, ex- express his gayness in Russia. It was one of the reasons he left, as well as his artistic interest. And I'm quite sure that the gay content of his life is going to have been a major factor causing the postponement, if not complete, cancellation of this production. The Russian Orthodox Church are absolutely on the rampage now with any sexual content, and gay is absolutely not forbidden. It is extremely sensitive, particularly for the Bolshoi Ballet, to be doing this, because they are the most important ballet company, the state ballet company. They reflect the brand of Russia around the world. But the authorities must have known about the content of the production for some time, and yet it's been pulled, what, two or three days before its premiere? Well, (laughs) Russians don't bother about such things as advanced planning. I expect they did. I expect they had a conversation, said it was all fine, and then probably a priest woke up on Sunday and said, no, we're not having it, because this is just what happened to Tannhäuser over in Siberia that Tannhäuser was about to go on, a big production of Wagner's opera, which is about a religious controversy. And uh, they simply got it pulled, and they got the director of the theatre sacked, and the producer was banned from production for a while. Now, the producer of this particular ballet, he's seen as a controversial modernist figure by the Conservatives in Russia, and recently there was a raid on his flat, claiming that he'd been fiddling the the finances of his theatre 
the arts community got up in arms and sent a letter to Putin defending this producer and saying this is just censorship by other means. So the producer, I'm absolutely sure, the director of the, of the production, he likes to thumb his nose at the Russian conservatives and... I don't see some sort of sanitization. You can't turn Nureyev miraculously away from being gay. Also, you can't get away from the fact that he left Russia in order to achieve artistic freedom. And what is appearing here, you could hardly write a better scenario for what Nureyev wanted to escape. Is many brown arts journalist and uh, dance critic. Shuedong is an unremarkable town in southern China, best known for its small but busy port, but it's also been revealed as the world's largest centre for illegal ivory trading and the destination for 80% of all poached ivory arriving in China from Africa. A report by the London-based Environmental Investigation Network says Shuedong is home to a web of ivory trafficking syndicates whose reach extends to East and West Africa, including the elephant poaching hotspots of Tanzania and Mozambique. Over a period of three years, its investigators infiltrated one of the leading syndicates. I've been speaking to the network's campaigns director, Julian Newman. Our impression is that people from Shui Long were recruited over a decade ago or more um, when China was opening up by Hong Kong people who were at that stage running the sea cucumber business. They employed Shui Long people to go out to Africa and start sourcing. Slowly the Shui Long people took over the business from the Hong Kongers and then because they had the networks in place in, in Africa, they were able to move things backwards and forwards between Africa and China with their, with their smuggling methods, and they just started doing the same with ivory. And what is that smuggling route? The methods are quite interesting. They often use quite long, convoluted routing, ones that don't make economic sense, and the whole aim there is to appear that you're not actually shipping stuff from Africa. For example, they will switch the shipping documents at a place en route, be it Singapore or Malaysia, so by the time it comes to the final destination, all the paperwork looks like it came from within the Asian region. This sort of uh, defeats risk profiling by customs because there's a, you know, there's a general alert about some cargoes from Africa. They also have confidence on the ground in, in Africa, freight agents in, in the main ports who are definitely part of the syndicates. They're the ones that do all the shipping documents. They're the ones that have the relationships with customs in these ports to, to get things through um, undetected, really. And presumably there's um, quite a bit of money passing hands, specifically the bribing of officials, though, along the way. It's a very sort of regimented system, it seems. Um, again, most of the Shui Long people, they don't do this directly. They, they, they go through their proxies on the ground there in Africa, normally local people who have the connections with either the customs or the freight agents. But in Zanzibar, for example, in 2014, the going rate for a kilo of ivory was 70 US dollars to ensure that it wouldn't be stopped or, or inspected. And a similar fee in Mozambique, the sort of fee paid to the locals is about $300 per kilo, and that includes the sourcing of the ivory, the collection, and the payoffs to everyone involved to, to get it out of the country. These residents of, of Shuedong, or former residents of, of Shuedong, play a, a primary role, the only role in the smuggling of African ivory into China? They play a very clearly defined role in that they only deal in raw tusks. Um, they don't do carving, they don't do retail. So their main clients are ivory carvers or factory owners who come to Shredong to buy the raw tusks. All the Shredong people do, they bring it from Africa, they store it at their hometown safely until they get the buyers from Fujian to come and, and, and do the deal. And are the Chinese authorities aware of this ivory smuggling network in Shredong, or have you made them aware of it? 
Well, China has been uh, quite good on enforcement against major ivory smuggling rings. Um, that's one of the reasons why a lot of these shipments go via third-party countries. So generally, China's made some interesting cases over the last few years. But has the release of your report earlier this month had any significant impact as far as you know? The biggest impact has been to try and raise awareness about these groups, and we've already heard that there's some investigations ongoing. But interestingly, the day we released our report, on the same day in Hong Kong, there was a seizure of 7.2 tonnes of ivory in one shipment. That, at the moment, appears to be a record amount of ivory. And it indicates that, firstly, organised crime is still involved in this business because you wouldn't be able to ship over seven tonnes unless you're very organised. And also the fact that the smugglers still believe there is value and money to be made from getting huge amounts of tusks into China, despite the fact that China's taken steps to close this ivory trade. So there's more work that needs to be done to disrupt these syndicates so that the African elephants have a chance of survival. That was uh, Julian Newman, campaign's director of the London-based Environmental Investigation Network. And a reminder of what is now our top story, the Prime Minister of Iraq says Mosul has been liberated from the Islamic State group, uh, bringing uh, to an end uh, almost nine months of fighting in the city. Ambrose Akin Musiri is a Californian trumpeter picked up by one British newspaper this week for his enigmatic brilliance. From a young age, he's started picking up some of the most prestigious awards in genres as diverse as classical music and hip-hop. He's now in London with a new album. It's called A Rift in Decorum, live at the Village Vanguard. We sent um, the BBC's Nick Marsh to meet him at, before one of his shows. And the first question he asked was whether a rift in decorum was a good or bad thing. We first have to decide what it even really means. My titles are really important to me. Um, I like to leave a lot of space for people to interject you know, their beliefs of what it could be like a bomb. Uh, and hopefully every time they revisit the title, it's different for them. I mean, we could sit here and talk about what it means for each of us, but I, I think that it would probably be different for, for both of us. Well, what does it mean to you? Uh, it's always changing. It's always changing. Um, but the purpose of having a title that's a little bit more... Um, provocative is to sort of get rid of an easy dismissal like I, I'm not into the arrivals the conclusions uh, and I, I think art is supposed to ask questions it implies a certain kind of disruption I imagine it could <laughs> um, and the oven itself I mean what I noticed is that you know there are parts of it which are very loud frenetic chaotic and then other parts which are uh, very, very slow-paced, moody, a lot quieter. I mean, it, it, there's some real extremes in this album. It's an album of extremes, isn't it? Yeah, OK. You know your stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I'm investigating right now in my art, um, is kind of rubbing two extremes together and seeing what they they come up with, or even putting two extremes right next to each other and discussing if there is a middle or examining if there is a middle. You know, I feel like middle is where you know, people are comfortable and people can just sit back and chill. I think this is a time to, to ask questions and to get people to think and to challenge people. 
get people to think. I mean, you in the past and your previous music, you haven't shied away from political themes, from what's going on in your home country in the United States. Um, you've made reference to the Black Lives Matter movement in your previous music. Do you feel you have a, a kind of a duty as a musician to engage politically? That's a great question. Um, I think before, uh, but yes, I, I do think artists are supposed to be the people who have the balls to, to, to call out things, to lift the curtain up and, and say this is what's behind it. But more and more I'm realizing that my existence in itself is a political statement and how I choose to live, you know, playing a live recording at the Village Vanguard, double disc, all original material as an African-American male in, in the United States during a time where, you know, a lot of men, especially black men, are being killed. Johnny Kamai Warren. Justin Sip. You know, this album was recorded, you know, one month after Trump was in, in office. Kimani Gray. Kendrick McDate. Timothy Russell. Orlando Barlow. So it could be a statement of, no, I'm not numb to, to all this stuff. I'm continuing to live my life at its fullest despite being hunted and, and uh, bombarded with all the craziness in the media. Uh, look, I mean, life is very grim. You come here, you deal with a bunch of stuff, and then you die. And I think the artist's role is, is to give people a reason to live, you know, despite the crazy politics, despite missiles being launched, despite Putin or Trump or whatever, all this stuff. Artists are supposed to say, you know, look at this. You know, look at this. This is the reason we live as opposed to just being like, oh, man, it really sucks. But when I'm on the stage, I'm, I'm really just trying to be a conduit and allow the spirit, which is, again, higher than all of us, to come through me and to come th through my horn and then hopefully heal people. That was Ambrose uh, Akin Musiri, American jazz trumpeter, bringing to an end this edition of NewsR. Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.